Okay, the first reading is uh, Psalm 51. You can find that on page 514 of the Church Bibles. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion, wash away my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The second reading tonight is John chapter 21, our last chapter of John. That can be found on page 1001 of the Church Bibles. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons and two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore. However, the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Men, Jesus called to them, you don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. Therefore, the disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer garment around him, for he was stripped, and plunged into the sea. But since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, 
the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter got up and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. I assure you, when you were young, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to signify by what kind of death he would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. So Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved following them. That disciple was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is the one that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? If I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. So this report spread to the brothers that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not tell him that he would not die, but if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which... If they were written down one by one, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> well, good evening, everybody. My name's Simon. If I haven't met you before, I'm one of the pastors here at church, uh, primarily at 8am and Love and Debate, and I oversee mission uh, at our church. <clears throat> Today's sermon is about identity. Who we are. That's what the sermon's all about. Who are you, in fact? It's a good question, isn't it? How do you define, how do you define yourself in your own mind? What is your identity? There are a number of different parameters that you could use, aren't there? For example, you could use your age. You might say, Simon, I'm young. Or Simon, I'm actually old. Or maybe you're on that cusp of not really sure if you're young or old anymore. You're sort of somewhere in that hazy in-between. Are you a family person or are you a rolling stone that gathers no moss, you're footloose and fancy free? 
Where do you come in birth order? Are you first? Are you second? Are you that middle child? Where do you come from? What's your ethnicity? Are you Indian, Lebanese, British, Asian, Australian? What's your educational background? Primary, secondary, tertiary, postgraduate? Maybe you're one of those people who has unfortunately grown up without an education. What about your income? Below 50, 50 to 100, 100 plus K? I mean, who even sets those guidelines and what does it even matter how much you earn? What's your address? I have a friend who's just moved from West Ride to Pennant Hills and she assures me she has moved up in the world. Which tribe do you belong to? Are you a conservative? Are you a hipster? I like to think that I'm a bit of a hipster. If I just do my top button up, I become a hipster. It's really cool. See, look, I'm a hipster. Beard, you know, top button. I'm not a hipster at all. I'm not a goth either. You know what I found out during the week? I went on to newsweek.com and I found out who I am, or pretty much close to who I am. I am, and you might love this, I'm normcore. I'm not hardcore. I'm normcore. Do you know what normcore is? Let me tell you what normcore is. Normcore finds liberation in being nothing special. Someone who knows they're just one in seven billion. Isn't that beautiful? I'm normcore. Praise the Lord. Maybe I'm not. And important in our day, and perhaps, unfortunately, perhaps important in our day, is our sexuality. Are you heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual? Who do you identify as? What is your identity? It's complex, isn't it? And who are we here at Church by the Bridge, 645? Who are you? There's a lot of evidence to say that connected to that kind of idea of who we are, our identity, is our worldview, what we think matters in the world, the grid through which we view everything that happens in the world, in our lives and sort of out there. And there are four key questions that are related to our worldview. The first question is, who am I? The second question is, what am I doing here? The third question is, what is wrong with the world? Or perhaps sort of more in our vernacular and our age is, what's wrong with my life? And fourthly, how can what is wrong be made right? Who am I? What am I doing here? What's wrong with the world? And how is what is wrong with the world going to be made right? Who are we? Who are you? Let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at John 21 tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word uh, that ultimately reveals who you are and what you have done in the world. Father, may tonight as we look at John 21, may we see you again afresh. May we see Jesus. May we hear Jesus. May we love Jesus. And Father, may we find tonight in him who we are and what we are to be doing as we live our lives that you have given to us on this earth. Father, by your spirit, help me to speak faithfully and with power. And Father, with the ears you have given each one of us, help us to be attentive to your voice. And by your spirit, soften our hearts that we might leave here knowing who we are and emboldened to take on the world. For your glory and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you know it's been eight months since we began John's Gospel? September 2013 is when we began our eight-month journey through this wonderful Gospel the Gospel of John. So we are at a momentous moment tonight. We've made it. You've made it to John chapter 21. And there's been a lot of water that's gone under the bridge, hasn't it, as we've been looking at John's Gospel. Do you remember the prologue, John chapter 1? 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word, Jesus, made his dwelling, took up residence among us, and we've seen the glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. John chapter 1, the massive scale of who Jesus is and what he's done. All the seven signs that filled the first half of the gospel, those seven signs, beginning with water being turned into wine, healing of the official's son, healing of the paralyzed man, feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, healing of the man born blind, and finally, when Jesus speaks a word and Lazarus comes back to life after being dead for four days. Seven signs. We've looked at all those. What about the seven I am statements of John's gospel? Do you remember them? I am the bread. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. Remember that one? I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life, John 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14. And I am the true vine, John 15. Seven statements. We've been there. We've explored them. What about that extended, beautiful upper room discourse, John 13 through 17, where Jesus, just hours before he dies for the sins of the world, shares intimate meals and moments and words with his most beloved disciples. And then there's that hour, the hour that had been building chapter after chapter after chapter through John's gospel, that hour when Jesus would indeed be, reveal himself as the lamb who came to take away the sins of the world lay his life down for you and for me and for everyone, but then boldly and triumphantly rise and defeat the grave. What about those cosmic themes in John's Gospel? You've picked up on those. Light, dark, life, death, true, lie, knowledge, ignorance, belief, unbelief, faith and doubt, and the cosmic separation that comes as a result of those things. Light, life, truth, knowledge, belief and faith separated from dark, death, lie, ignorance, unbelief, and doubt. Huge separation. Not to mention the intimate conversations that Jesus has had throughout the gospel. Remember this woman at the well, John 4? Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus at night, John 3. What about the metaphors? They're everywhere. The multi-layers of John's gospel The time and time again phrase, truly, truly, or I assure you, that pops up with Jesus. It's been an enormous eight months, hasn't it, in John's gospel. And in one sense, we finished John's gospel last week when we hit Easter, because we hit that tremendous verse, John chapter 20, verse 31. Do you know it? Do you know it off by heart? You ought to know it off by heart. It's been on the screen every week, blinking all the time at you. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing in him, have life in his name. Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, who laid down his life for the sins of the world, and by believing in him, you may have eternal life. That's the purpose statement. That's why John wrote it, so that we would be able to do that, believe in Jesus and have life in his name. Surely, therefore, that's the natural end to this gospel. You know, Jesus has triumphed over sin. He's died for the sins of the world. He's risen. The tomb is empty. He's alive. He's presented himself to the disciples and to us. And then Thomas moves from being doubting Thomas to being believing Thomas. And he says, he cries out the thing that that John wants all of us to cry out. Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. And you think to yourself, John, well done. You've done it. Your testimony is beautiful, perfectly packaged. What is going on with John 21? Why is John chapter 21 in our Bibles? 
Who wrote it? Why is it there? See, many scholars believe that John chapter 21 is an addition to the gospel that John, the writer of chapters 1 to 20, didn't write. But I think John chapter 21, verses 24 and 25, make that absolutely a nonsense. The text itself claims that this is the same person, the same witness, the disciple that Jesus loved. And that theory doesn't make much sense in light of verse 21, which is kind of like an echoed ending, like a homage to John chapter 20, verse 31, the purpose statement. Nor does it make sense because as we look at John chapter 21, we see the same literary devices, we see the same kind of intimate conversations, we've seen the same cosmic themes. I thoroughly believe that John wrote this. But it's an extra thought, not an afterthought. It's an extra thought. And my theory is that one of the, reasons, one of the problems with finishing at John chapter 20 is you end up with this question, maybe it's in your mind as well, what happened to the disciples? Whatever happened to the disciples? And more specifically, whatever did happen to Peter? See, in John's gospel, there are two big themes. Here are the two big themes. On one side, you've got Jesus. Jesus, his person and his work. Who is he? What has he come to do? His mission to lay down his life for the sins of the world. That's, that's one big theme. On the other side, the other big theme is you've got this new community that's forming around the risen Lord Jesus, people believing and coming into the the relationship with Jesus and so having life in his name, this new community that's forming around Christ. That's the other big theme. And Peter and John, all the way through the gospel, have been representative of that new community. Peter was the first to be called and renamed by Jesus in John chapter 1. Peter in John chapter 13, verse 36, makes that definitive commitment to Jesus. Remember, Peter goes, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus responds, Peter, where I'm going, you can't come. And Peter goes, whoa, 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 I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. Definitive commitment. But then Jesus, just a few verses later, says, actually, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And that's actualized, isn't it, in John chapter 18, verse 15, where Peter does deny Jesus three times. He makes the definitive commitment. He then makes the definitive denial. And he becomes the definitive failure. And he's the representative of the new community. And he will be the representative of what this community is to be and what our mission is to be, who we are. That's what John 21 is all about. That's what John 21 is all about. And when we arrive at John chapter 21, we're finally at the text. You're going, praise the Lord, we're finally there. John chapter 21, page 1001. What are the disciples doing? The text tells us they've gone fishing. Now, this ought to be utterly scandalous to you as you read this. In chapter 1, what were they doing when Jesus called them? What were they doing? Fishing. They've been called out of that occupation into being followers of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus died, okay, maybe things maybe looked like they'd gone a bit pear-shaped. You know, Jesus, the project has failed. You're dead. And we're following a dead guy. But he's not dead anymore, is he? Peter was there and he saw the empty tomb. He was there in the upper room when Jesus stood there and said, look at my hands, look at my feet, put your fist in my side. I am alive. Why are they back fishing? How is this possible? You should be thinking something is not right. They've missed the boat. Pardon the pun. And again, our representative leader is the key, isn't he? John chapter 21, verse 3. Peter stands up, 
I'm going fishing. What do they all say? We're coming with you. Interesting that at the end we're told they went out at night. That's when the pro fishermen go and fish and catch all the fish so that when you put your rod in the next morning, there's nothing to catch. Um, they fished. But why are they back fishing? How is this possible? You see, friends, it's at this point I want to suggest to you that this text teaches us four things about who we are as the new community gathered around Christ. The four things are these. Firstly, we are a loved people. Secondly, we are a forgiven people. Thirdly, we are a called people. Fourthly, though, we are an imperfect people. Four things. The rest of tonight's sermon is just a reflection on those four statements. Who are we? Who are you? We're a loved people. We're a forgiven people. We're a called people. We are imperfect people. So first, let's have a look at this idea that we're a loved people. You see, in this passage, in John 21, Jesus comes after these men, doesn't he? He comes after this man, Peter. And this is not new in John's gospel. It's been the pattern all the way through. John chapter 1, verse 11, when we're introduced to this word, this pre-existent deity, the Lord Jesus Christ, the key idea in that verse is that he came. He comes. He's the one who comes. Famous John three sixteen. God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son. He comes. He gives himself to us. It's not unfamiliar in John's gospel. Jesus comes after them. He takes the initiative. He pursues these men. See, we're a loved people. It's central to who we are. God has sought us out. He's come after us. When we went back to our old ways, when we preferred our former life, he pursued us. And this should be so clear because of John chapter 15, verse 13. No one has greater love than this, that someone should lay down his life for his friends. He said that before he died, and now Jesus has died. Greater love has no man. He came for you, and he died for you. And that's to say nothing about all of Jesus' tenderness and his kindness and his strength and the jealousy that he has for you that we see in all the personal interactions of Jesus throughout the gospel. God pursues us out of an insatiable love. Who are we? We're a loved people. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be loved. Do you know that you're loved? Like deep down, do you know that you're loved, that God has pursued you, he's come to you? And what's so fantastic about this narrative is that all those subtleties in the personal interactions that Jesus has with Peter in this story is that he comes to where Peter is, on the water, as a fisherman. Jesus stands on the shore and calls out to him. He comes to Peter despite his fears. I mean, can you imagine the moment that when Peter realized that his Lord, and in fact the Lord of the whole universe and the cosmos because Jesus has risen from the dead, do you think at that moment he's a little bit fearful and afraid as Peter reflects on his denials? Don't you think that Peter would have just been a little bit shaky? Here is God in our midst, and I'll let him down. Jesus comes after him despite Peter's fears with such a subtle approach. He calls out to him and then on the beach is a meal. 
He's not come before me, sit down, and here's a massive mahogany desk, and you sit there under that really hot spotlight, and I'm going to grill you and make you squirm. That's not what Jesus does. It's subtle, it's nuanced, it's beautiful. Jesus comes to him. There's a meal. They go for a walk along the beach. And my testimony is that is what God's love is like. It's nuanced. It's subtle. He knows you. He knows your needs. He knows all those things we talked about. He knows your age, your gender, your family status, your income, your ethnicity, your language, whether you're normcore or hardcore or hipster or whatever it might be. He knows you better than you know yourself. I mean, God loves you. He does it in that beautiful, nuanced, personal, intense love of you. Not the person beside you or in front of you or behind you. God loves them as well, but he loves you. Personal. Intense. We're a loved people. We're also a forgiven people. That's the second aspect of who we are as this new community. You see, what did Peter deserve? I think his fears were well-founded, actually. What did Peter deserve? Of course he'd be aware. He's surely sitting there going, oh my gosh, I denied Jesus three times. He warned me ahead of time. I should have steeled myself, readied myself for the challenge when the slave girl came up to me and said, you know, you know this man, don't you? And I said, no, no, no. Now God is in my midst. He should come with me, not with love, but with vengeance. Anyone here watch that TV show Revenge on Channel 7? Come on. Anyone? Great. I've never watched it. I think to watch Revenge would be one of the most soul-destroying things you could possibly do for your life. But that is what Peter deserves. Revenge, retribution, vengeance, the full wrath of God. But no. He gets a meal. He gets a walk with the God who is there. And there are no doubt, there are, this, there are reminders at every point through this scene, aren't there, of Peter's failure and his sin. Do you think that when Peter made it to shore, do you notice that he puts on his gear and jumps into the water? Do you reckon when Peter finally made it to shore, after swimming that 100-meter dash, when he got onto the beach, what did he find? A charcoal fire. And as the, he looks at that fire and the smell kind of wafts up, and gets up into his nose, and then his olfactory nerve kind of connects that to his brain, and then that connects to some memories. You know what I think he's thinking of? I think he's thinking of the charcoal fire that stood outside the room where Jesus was being interrogated by the Jewish authorities, where he's there warming his hands on that night, and once, twice, three times denies ever knowing Jesus. And that walk along the beach... But Jesus makes the point of what? Asking him once, twice, three times whether or not he loves him. Again, triggering the memory of that three times denial. Yes, Jesus has pursued him. Yes, Jesus has pursued you with an insatiable love, but it's not a forgetful love. The nature of Jesus' love for us, our relationship with him is not characterized by denial or forgetfulness. That is very significant. The nature of our relationship with Jesus is not about acceptance or minimization or just sweeping under the carpet our wrong. That is critical. Jesus doesn't deny nor forget nor accept 
nor minimize, nor sweep under the carpet. No, he forgives. That's the difference. You see, we mess it up all the time when we just have that idea. We just forgive and forget. Because forgiveness, this side of heaven, yes, I promise you, in heaven there will be forgetting. But this side of heaven, forgiveness is not about forgetting. It's about remembering. And repentance, our side of the equation, is about remembering. It's the right kind of remembering, but it's remembering the nonetheless. You see, God's love for us cost him dearly. It cost him his son. And loving in a broken world costs you. A member of our church, um, back on April the 6th when we had Super Sunday at 9.45, um, she invited along to that. That's our service where we ask people to invite small kids along uh, mums and dads come to hear about Jesus and the kids get exposed to what church is like and they get to hear about the love of Jesus and things like that. On that morning, this woman from our church, amongst us, part of our new community, she invited her ex-husband's new wife to church. Divorced only recently, she invited her ex-husband's new wife to church and she turned up with her children, the woman who's been divorced with her kids in hand. Why did she do that? Her ex-husband's new wife, and guess what else she did? Right where you're sitting, she sat next to her for the whole service to encourage her to hear about Jesus, to support her in that, to talk to her before, to talk to her afterwards. She came back to our house after that morning for lunch She was a broken woman. She went through half a box of our tissues. She was a mess, broken. Cost her dearly. And God, to love you, it cost him dearly. It was sacrificial. We need to remember that our forgiveness is based on costly love. Yes, you are loved, but that love is contingent on forgiveness. Jesus doesn't deny, nor forget, nor accept, minimize, or ignore. He forgives. That's wonderful. And these two realities of God's love and forgiveness come together in one of my favorite songs, Pretty Daggy, Be Prepared, Michael W. Smith. Have I got any fans out there? Yes. Beautiful. But listen to these lyrics. They're wonderful lyrics. From Michael W. Smith. And this is my confession. I have been unfaithful. I have been unworthy. I have been unrighteous. And I've been unmerciful. I've been unreachable. I've been unteachable. I've been unwilling. And I've been undesirable. Sometimes I've been unwise. I've been undone by what I'm unsure of. But because of you and all that you went through, I know that I've never been unloved. We're a loved people. We're a forgiven people. And we're a called people. That's the third key aspect of our passage. We're a called people. You see, Peter has been called into a new service of his master. He can't go back. Brothers and sisters, this is the whole tenor of John chapter 21. Peter cannot go back. He was a fisherman. He's called to follow Jesus. 
And now he's been restored, loved, forgiven, and now called back into a new ministry, a new life-changing role, and there's no going back. That's the whole idea of this passage. You see, the love and the forgiveness and the calling of God are all inseparable. And in this passage, in this little conversation between John and Peter, we see all these three things intertwined, love, forgiveness, and calling all come together. Do you see that? Do you love me, Peter? Then if you love me, feed my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. Now, of course, this task is specific to Peter, isn't it? He's an apostle. uh, He's foundational. His ministry, unrepeatable. But the call to Peter as our representative is a call to us as Christians. We're given a task when we come into relationship with him. And the task is to do the Father's work. It's not new in John's Gospel. John 1, 43, the very beginning and basis for Jesus' relationship with his disciples, that they would come and follow me. John chapter 13, verse 15, Jesus says, You are to do all that I have done. When Jesus washes people's feet, we're to wash people's feet. John 13, verse 34, I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men, all people will know that you are my followers, my disciples. John chapter 20, verse 21, same again. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. I don't want to push this too much, but I think it's there in the text, so stick with me. When Jesus says, feed my lamb, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep, there's no difference there, okay? It's just the same thing repeated for emphasis' sake. But I don't think the sheep, when Peter talks here, it's simply just Christians, simply just people who are already in the fold, in the church. You see, the setup of this particular interaction with Peter is John chapter 10, where Jesus, as the good shepherd says, there are sheep who are not yet of the fold, who are yet to be brought in. So the feeding of God's sheep is intentional love for those who are already called in and brought in, loved and forgiven, who know Jesus. And we are called, brothers and sisters, to love each other deeply with a sincere love, a love like Jesus. But there's also an intention here as we get called into ministry to love those who are not yet in the sheep pen, for want of a better expression, who are not in the fold, to love them to the end and to seek them out. What is the church's ministry? What is our ministry? What's the church's ministry around the world It's to love God's people and to love the lost. In the trust that as we go out to seek the lost, God will do his work at bringing them in. That's Christian ministry. Feed my sheep. Care for my sheep. Love the lost. And friends, this will cost us. We are called to bear the cost of loving. It's ought to be intuitive to us. Jesus has loved us. And it cost him his life. And you and I are called to love his people and to love the lost. What will it cost you? What will it cost me? I'm sorry. It's going to cost you your life. It cost Peter his life. He was martyred for one who went out to seek and save the lost. My understanding is that Peter was crucified upside down under the rule of Nero. He didn't want to die the same way the Lord died. He didn't feel worthy of that. going to cost us our lives. Maybe not violently, maybe not as a martyr, 
Maybe not in a bloodied or horrific kind of death, but it will cost you your life. Jesus gave up his rights so that we might have life. We are called to follow him and so give up our rights so that others may have life. Friends, anything less is like climbing back into the fishing boat. We're a loved people. We're a forgiven people. We're a called people, called to a transforming work in the world, to see people's lives change from the ground up. And yet, don't even really need to say it, do I? Fourthly, we're an imperfect people. We are an imperfect people. You are looking at a particularly imperfect preacher, very imperfect man. I'm looking at pretty imperfect people. It's fascinating, isn't it? Peter, in this conversation, the Lord of all has come to him. He was afraid but discovers the security and the warmth of Jesus' love for him. Jesus wants to be with him. Jesus forgives him. Doesn't forget, but forgives him. And then calls him into life-changing, world-transforming mission. This is enormous. And in the very moment of his being loved and forgiven and then being called into ministry, what does Peter do? Do you see in the text? turns around and says, but what about that guy? What's, what's going to happen to him? What's he supposed to do? doesn't sound that bad, does it, from Peter's mouth. It sounds a bit innocuous, doesn't it? But well, Jesus' response clearly shows us that Peter's motive was wrong. His heart was in the wrong place. You see Jesus' response in verse 22? If I want him to remain alive until I come, Peter, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. Jesus sees into the heart of Peter. In this momentous, loved, forgiven, called moment, Peter is just fundamentally faulty. Rather than focusing on his love for Jesus and his mission to follow Christ, he's more concerned about what other people are doing. He's an imperfect man. We're an imperfect church. You know that. It's implied in our need for forgiveness, but it's also ongoing. We are imperfect people. And our imperfections are multiple. My imperfections are multiple. We're weak, physically weak, mentally weak, emotionally weak. We're broken and scarred. All those things that have happened to us in our life that coalesce, all those things that have injured us, the times we've hurt other people, other people have hurt us, the sin we've done for others, brokenness, that all that remains with us this side of heaven. And so we need help, ongoing help in the Christian life. But of course, it's not in this chapter, but we've already seen it as John set it up earlier. We know that a counsellor will come, a helper. He will lead God's new community into ever deeper understanding of truth convicting us of our sin and our unrighteousness, convicting the lost of their sin and unrighteousness as necessary. And he gives strength to the weak. He strengthens us in times of trial. When our imperfections rub off on each other, the Holy Spirit builds us up again, refocuses our attention not on ourselves but on the Lord, his love, his forgiveness, and what we're here to do. Why is there the Holy Spirit? We're an imperfect people. Salvation starts with God. It always has. 
It's not you, it's not me. It's affected by God for you and for me. We couldn't do it. And it's completed by God. You don't get to the end because you're doing it. Salvation doesn't work that way. God is at work in us, transforming us to be more and more like his son, fitted out for glory. Who are we as the new community? We're a loved people. We're a forgiven people. We are a called people. But we're an imperfect people. Who are you? Who am I? Remember those worldview questions? Who am I? I'm a loved child of God. Forgiven. Called. What am I doing here? I'm here to receive the love of God with great thanks and awesome humility. And I'm here to make much of Jesus and to seek to love his people and to seek the lost. That's what I'm here for. What is wrong with the world? Me and everyone like me. And how can that wrong be made right? It can be made right by accepting the forgiveness that only comes through Christ. Taking responsibility for your sin, your faults. And then taking up the task of following Jesus for the good of all people. That's the gospel of John. Isn't the gospel marvellous? Isn't it wonderful? John chapter 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and by believing in him, have life and have it in his name. Loved, forgiven, called, but imperfect. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the Gospel of John. Father, we thank you and praise that you kept John alive so that he could pen this word so that we can have it this day, April 27, 2014, the year of our Lord. And so by having it in our hands, we can know who Jesus is. We can know that he is the perfect Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And Father, we know by reading this testimony that by believing in him, we can definitely, truly, certainly have life in his name. Father, thank you for forgiveness. Father, may we never forget what it cost. That it cost your son, his life. And Father, we thank you that as we read this word, your word of God, we know who we are. Loved, forgiven, called into life-transforming mission. Father, help us to be men and women who don't just say we follow Jesus, but who actually follow Jesus and are willing to love each other and love the lost, all for your glory. Father, we thank you for you and what you've done for us this night in Jesus' name. Amen.